Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have a, an old friend of the show, Kieran Cron, as my guest. Kieran, as you might recall, won the unlikely accolade of the world's best channel manager, uh, which forced me to go and interview him, and it turned out that he probably was. And uh, he and I have become fast friends ever since. We've worked together and uh, we've collaborated together. And I'm so pleased to have him back as a guest because now he's transitioned from being a phenomenal channel manager into being a highly effective mid-market direct manager. And he's got a team uh, and we're going to be talking about the transition, how you need to be able to develop those partnering skills in order to become a really effective manager. And we're going to break that down into its component parts. We're going to look at the fundamental, the single most important factor that determines a manager's success, which is their ability to recruit well. And we're going to look at Kieran's process, which we've worked on together, but he's taken to a whole new height. So without any further ado, Kieran, welcome. Marcus, appreciate the uh, introduction there and absolute pleasure to be back on the show. I think it's been a little bit long, but yeah, I'm excited to chat and always enjoy our conversation. So ready to get stuck in today. Excellent. Okay. So could you just give everyone two minutes on your history? Because it's uh, quite an interesting rise to leadership. And I'm interested in not only the journey, but the perils along the way. I mean, from the, the very beginning, I'm not going to go into this in too much detail. I actually studied to be a town planner at university. Uh, most people wouldn't okay. believe that. It wasn't all just playing SimCity, uh, but <laughs> that kind of led me into um, eventually coming back to Australia. I lived in the, U- in the UK for a few years during the GFC and found myself in a sales role, as most people do. Um, sales kind of found me and I sort of fell into it. Fast forward to about sort of seven years ago, made my way into HubSpot when I started uh, on the channel side of the business. So working to develop the partner program in Australia and New Zealand. And I was in that role for about six years, 12 months ago. So 1st of Feb last year, I moved over to take a new challenge in uh, leading a small business direct sales team. So been doing that for the past year and um, have kind of, yeah, really had to uh, drink from a fire hose again. You know, it's kind of always a bit daunting going from having almost felt like you've mastered a set of skills to going back to being a beginner again. So that was that was frightening, but um, I think that's what helps you to grow as a person and a professional, right? It does. And I think it's the challenge that makes the work feel worthwhile. If it's all too familiar and simple, I, I, I'd get bored. I mean, hats off to people who can do drudgery. My mind doesn't work like that. Okay, so let's have a think. What was the biggest mistake you made from which you profited later in the transition from channel to direct? It's a great question. I would probably pin it to a couple of things. The first thing that would spring to mind would be making mistakes when it comes to hiring. And I think most people, at least, you know, that have been people managers and just to have run businesses in general, know the importance of having the right people in the right seats. So, you know, I didn't have any prior experience in terms of what recruitment looked like, how to hire. And yeah, I mean, I would take responsibility for a few of the hires that, that I made at the time weren't probably the right fit for the role. Unfortunately, um, 
you know, those mistakes were made, but I think the learnings off the back of those have been extremely valuable, which have allowed me to reflect back to kind of think about the the root of that to kind of go back and understand um, what kind of questions I was asking, not necessarily like sticking to the the playbook in terms of some of the questions that our recruitment team give us as a manager. So I've kind of found my own way and started to realize that the kind of the questions that are in there don't necessarily align with the attributes that I think are important in a salesperson. And so I think for me, that's a big learning is to not take things on surface level and to not necessarily be rogue and to be a wolf, but to kind of do things that I believe are important to make sure I'm kind of testing for the right skills when, when interviewing and recruiting. Now, that is interesting because it's a quality that very few managers have, which is to push back against the system. So how do you do that in a way that doesn't jar with your management? Because I think that's a fear that a lot of new managers will have. Yeah, I think it's really like anything. It's important to explain your philosophy behind it and why you're taking that approach. Luckily, you know, at that cup spot in the team that I'm in, we do have a culture of, you know, people being open to, to change. And in general, like, you know, we can have healthy, productive conversations where if you don't agree with something, you know, your voice is heard, which is great. And so, you know, I take my hat off to my director for kind of creating this environment where have people do have psychological safety to kind of, you know, bring their their mind and, and speak their piece as well. So, you know, like part of it was was also doing some testing in the beginning as well. Like, I'd sort of try some questions in the playbook. I would insert some of my own. And I just wanted to gauge the reaction and sort of how how that would influence the conversation. And over time, I started to realize that there were things that were probably more important that I really wanted to look for. So what what were those more important factors? Some of the things that I really think are important in terms of what makes a successful salesperson, I mean, there are many of them, but I guess if I try to, I guess, compartmentalize or bucket them into three key areas. For me, it's someone that's driven, someone that's self-motivated, someone that has a strong why um, and a purpose for what they do. Don't They don't just look at sales as, you know, for what it is on the tin, someone that actually looks at the potential it has to change your life and your career and someone that's actually, you know, self-motivated to do things and doesn't always need a manager to, to remind them of why they're there and what they're doing. I think the other area would be like a big thing for me is coachability. I'd say like my leadership style is very much on on the coaching side of things. So, you know, without someone being open to feedback, someone being willing to try new things, to, to implement those things, it's going to be really, really hard for them, particularly in the world that we operate with the technology that changes on a daily basis. It's a very dynamic environment. So you need to be open to those changes. And so knowing that someone has the ability to or the desire to want to change uh, and be coachable is extremely important. And then the last thing for me, I think, is is around uh, time management and the, the ability to prioritize. You know, there's a million and one things that a salesperson can be doing in a given time. and People get distracted, right? I mean, I think we've just got so much noise, notifications. We're getting pinged a thousand times a day and there's just so many things that come at us. And it's really hard for people to stay focused, particularly when you think about the opportunity that we have. Luckily, you know, we have a huge database of, of people to be speaking to. And the problem that we have is figuring out who you, who you should be speaking to and who you should be spending your time with, as opposed to going after opportunities that are never going to go anywhere. 
so that sounds like the application of prices law may have come into play to prioritize where where to go do you mind explaining your thought process there and what prices law is so this is something i'm pretty sure you uh you brought up with me a long time ago and it stuck with me for a while i think like really when you boil it down it's um it's really recognizing that you've only got like time is your most precious resource, right? It's something that you're never going to get more of. And that's just the reality. So a big thing that I focus on in the beginning with all the reps that join the team is ensuring that they know the concept of a good fit business to be speaking to. Like I mentioned, there's just, there's too many people you can be speaking to. So you really need to narrow that focus down to make sure that the businesses and the people that you are speaking to are a fit in terms of the product, the solution, they have problems that we can solve for. Um, and they know deeply like what are the personas in those businesses. So we do a lot of work in terms of fit when it comes to, I guess, ICP, and then knowing specifically the persona that our, our messaging is going to resonate with. That's really interesting. Okay. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the concept of prices law, Derek DeSolo Price was an academic and he noticed that 50% of all the academic papers produced in academia were produced by the square root of the number of lecturers at a university. And when you start to extrapolate that out, it's basically 80-20ing the top 20 and the bottom 20%. The bottom 20%, you want to disqualify as quickly as possible, preferably without any human touch. Because these are the kind of customers who will make your life a misery. They'll be penny-pinching tight asses who pay late, who quibble over everything, who tie up your support desk because they're a wrong fit and you should never, ever have sold to them. So it's on you if you have them as customers and you need to find a way of gently and nurturingly ejecting them. The top 4%, they're the ones that will produce the majority of your income. And in fact, not long ago, there was a wonderful example of this uh, in Salesforce, where uh, Benioff was concerned that 4% of the sales team generated 96% of the revenue, and that leaked. And what's really interesting about that is it's not unusual, it's, and it's quite normal for that kind of imbalance to occur. How did you manage to ensure homogeneity in terms of performance, whilst also catering for all of their different personality styles, backgrounds, and values? I think it really comes down to <clears throat> the ability to create that focus firstly. So what we we do, and we've recently gone through an exercise at the start of this year, is to typically customers in Australia take more time off over January. So there's not a whole lot of people to speak to, which presents an opportunity for for the reps to take stock, slow down, step back and zoom out and actually look at the opportunity that's in front of them. And I guess I like to try to encourage the team to sort of think about being the CEO of their own business in the sense that you have this opportunity of your own, you can make what you want of it. And so having the ability to firstly segment, identify prospects and customers in their install base that have a lot of potential. They're looking for white space, looking for growth industries, businesses that are sort of thriving in a downturn and giving them a bit of direction in terms of making sure that they've built out you know, specific point of views for the industry, for the persona, having linkage to the problem and the solution as well. I think that, that in itself kind of 
getting back to your point before, the price is low, it's that kind of 80, 20 rule, right? When we know that we've got some very high fit, high potential accounts that can produce significant revenue for the business. And that's just a framework, right? And so that can be overlaid over any individual, but then it's important to sort of understand the strengths and the weakness of that person because everyone has different attributes. People learn at different paces with different styles as well. So kind of taking that framework and then I guess in a way like molding it and overlaying it in terms of how that person is going to best approach that situation. Right. Okay. So um, you just made me think of something vaguely original, um, which is called playbook blindness. I see this happen very, very often where managers insist on people sticking to the playbook. They stick to the sales system religiously, which isn't always appropriate. How do you manage the expectations of your team when they've probably had it beaten into them that you don't deviate from the playbook? Yeah, I think it's a case of giving them the it's it's the the you know the old metaphor of like give a fisherman the rod instead of the fish, right? If you teach them the the framework and the philosophy and the methodology behind it then you allow them to use their own style to craft something that works for them naturally because just what worked for me isn't going to work for other people in my team. We all have very different styles. And if I tried to force that upon someone, it wouldn't be natural. They would probably hate it and it wouldn't work either. So I think you really need to recognize that in itself that you need to enable people by giving them the why behind it and the framework. Of course, there's certain times where I think like playbooks can be helpful We've built a framework in terms of how to how to run outbound calls at HubSpot. We've got a framework in terms of like best practice when it comes to running discoveries, but that's not the be all and end all, right? Because everyone has their own method to their madness, so it's important to recognize that. It's really interesting because it takes quite a, a courageous manager to relinquish control and to commit that amount of time into developing the individual's performance so that the individual can perform at their best, thereby deliver the team's number. Because the majority of managers have a perspective, which is that they need to try and control things. You seem to have given up the attempt to control by empowering people. How did you get there? In reality, I think in the beginning, I I probably did make some mistakes. I think there was probably an element of control that I saw not working as I would have expected. And I think like always kind of go back to the carrot or the stick, right? And people respond much better to autonomy, having the ability to kind of do things their way, empowering them to do those things, having a feeling of competency as well, um, and being connected with others. So if you can kind of think about those broadly speaking, and knowing that if you invest in that individual, and have their best interests at heart in terms of making sure that all the things you're doing are leading to them achieving a particular outcome, which is understanding sort of their why and working backwards from that. It means that there's it's all about trust, right? And so, you know, a lot of it is expectation setting in the beginning in terms of what I expect of you, of the team, what I'll, what you expect of me as well. And so there are some like, there's some groundwork and there's some some stuff that gets laid there at the beginning, but then this is, like I said, this is your business. You can do things your way. I want to empower you to take your own approach. Okay, so that's a very enlightened approach to management. It also requires you to have 
uh, a light touch. How do you resist the temptation to rescue? It's not easy. <laughs> I want to rescue <laughs> people all the time, every day. I mean, I do a lot of ride-alongs with my reps. I often sit in on calls and the temptation is to just take over, run that call because I probably could do it. And I think in the in the beginning, there is an element of leading by example, right? Especially when reps are pretty new to the funnel in their first couple of months. I think that kind of stuff is necessary because you can sort of show them the way and you know they can kind of take bits and pieces and make it into their own style. But I guess over time, I've sort of learned like the art of slowly stepping back. I think in the beginning, maybe I did make mistakes in terms of being too involved and then stepping back too quickly. And there was you know, uh, there were some issues there. And so like over time, I've had to be more conscious about slowly stepping back and allowing that person to have their own style of flourishes. Very good. Very good. Okay. Tell me this then. Let's go back to your partnering days. When you engage with partners, you obviously at some point realized that they've written business for themselves um, and for their reasons, not yours or HubSpot's. And in order to derive their best work, you needed to tap into their motivation. In the same way that you've done with your people, you've actually uncovered what their motivation is through the interview process, finding their why, their purpose. Then you have the ability to remind them of that. I'm curious about the parallels and the differences between managing an indirect sales operation and managing a direct sales operation. Also, what are the similarities? I think the, the starting off with the similarities would be when it comes to you know managing a channel and having relationships with partners. At the end of the day, like as a vendor, they don't they don't owe you anything. They don't report to you. They're not accountable to you. So you need to you know you need to think about how to lead with compassion intimacy um, and also think about you know at the end of the day like they're just humans right so these people started a business for a specific reason and being able to really understand like the reason why they started their business everyone's got different motivations right so truly understand the why and then also building like trust and respect and leading with influence is something that i think is paramount in terms of you know, running a channel that's that's healthy. And so I've tried to take as much of that, maybe naturally it's kind of come with me as I've moved from one side of the business over to the other. And, you know, it all starts with respect, right? Um, you know, you're not, you know, you don't instantly have respect for someone, you've got to earn that with them. And so that's where I think kind of leading by example, giving people autonomy, um, being invested in their success kind of helps to establish that early on. And then, you know, the rest kind of builds over time. But I think by having an invested interest in knowing what's important to them, again, it all starts with like the end in mind and working backwards from that, right? And what are the non-negotiable values that everyone in the team has to share? I think a big one for me is uh, authenticity. So people bring their real self. And that's easier said than done, right? Because in a professional environment, not everyone wants to speak their mind. And it's still a work in progress. I wouldn't say that it's perfect by any means. Um, it takes a long time to kind of create that space, right, where people are free, they feel free to be able to speak their mind. And so that's one of the values that are really important to me that I like people to bring into the team environment. It's an open conversation. You know, there's no dumb questions. 
we only learn by asking and making mistakes, right? And I think that's one of the big things is is encouraging people to make those mistakes, not to shy away from them and to lean into them because it's the only way that we really, we really grow and develop together. Really important lessons I've learned the last few years. Uh, intentionally go out and find people who disagree with you. Try and prove your thesis wrong and don't speak to family and friends uh, about it. Uh, and don't ask people, what do you think of my idea? There's a really excellent book I uh, was just recommended, which I'm loving, called The Mom, the, the Mom Test. And it's a way of assessing whether or not your product and or service has any real viability by uh, seeing whether it passes the non-test, which is basically, are you asking leading questions that uh, force people to say something nice eventually as you're begging for a compliment? Or are you getting really insightful information from everybody you speak to, either to qualify them in or out, to identify unmet need or unmet demand or non-customers or non-buyers? Really important to identify the non-buyers because you don't want to waste any money or time on them. You're just an interruption to them. So marketing to them does them no favors and it just wastes your time and money and ties up your reps chasing people you're never going to sell to. So tell me this then, in a company like yours, you must be drowning in technology and you have to use your own obviously as well. How do you make sure that um, your reps do not fall foul of the temptation becoming basically automation uh, robots and that they actually spend time speaking to living, breathing human beings. It's definitely a double-edged sword working uh, for a technology company where you've got access to sequences, templates, things that can basically automate all your communications. And I'll be honest, like that kind of stuff still happens. I mean, because people have access to the tools. And I think when you you help them to understand, again, kind of getting getting back to my point before, like truly and deeply knowing your customer in terms of those personas that we spoke about before allows you to be empathetic as a rep to kind of put yourself in the customer's shoes to put a mirror up, right? Which allows you to craft the right kind of message. And so that human element is key. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of reps have lost over time is spray and pray, thinking that I can send out, you know, hundreds of sequences and, you know, I'll get a couple of bites out of it. In reality, I mean, it's just damaging to the brand. You're going to get unsubscribes. Marketing have worked hard to acquire these leads as well. So it's really just about being a human, right? Like, you know, if you, even if you think about the amount of LinkedIn messages that I get hmm. that are disgraceful, like they've been, clearly set up by automation. There's no human element to it whatsoever. It's straight into the pitch. And I'd like to think that there's a decent amount of information that you could find out about me online to spark some kind of creative conversation, right? And so these are the kind of things I encourage my reps to do is like, look at the person, understand who they are, find some either common connection or something that's going to spark... spark some kind of interest or some sort of passion and and you know moving away from the the traditional form of communication which is hi i noticed using like signing off sincerely or best regards these kind of things that are just like a lot of people think are like natural and common practice in a professional environment because that's what they've been taught and that's what they've seen in the past and kind of breaking that mold thinking about the fact that you know 80% of people read emails on a phone right really like you've got about 
15 to 20 words max that someone's going to see as they scroll through their inbox. And so it's really important to be punchy, to be different and to remove that formality because like I said before, it's such a noisy world that you need to get people's attention really quickly. And so, you know, more recently, like we've been doing a lot of work in terms of how to move from, you know, classic email to email that looks like text. Messaging is where all these forms of communication are happening these days. So it's like, how do we leverage that across these different channels to really, to make it as human as possible? There's an excellent book that my friend Marcus Hemsley recommended by Roy Schwartz and Mike Allen called Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More With Less. Um, And it's got some really fantastic structures in there to help you become more succinct and to eliminate the noise and the uh, the fluff from your communication and to structure it in such a way that fits with the way the brain likes to take information in. If you're not using, uh, if you're not reading around and trying to learn how to use these kind of uh, approaches, then chances are you're just going to sound like everybody else and look like everyone else, and you're not going to differentiate. And in an inbox like mine, which gets 500 to 1,000 a day on LinkedIn and email, you've got next to no chance of capturing any attention unless that headline jumps out, grabs me by the throat and draws me in because I just don't have the attention span uh, to look at your tediously long email. So in the body copy, for God's sake, just get to the fucking point, will you? And don't bore me with your history and other shit. Make it relevant to me. But that means you've got to put some effort in. If you just knock stuff out at scale, you're going to hit maybe one in 200, if you're lucky. And the other 199 are going to think, if I ever receive another response uh, email from that arsehole again, I'm going to blacklist them. And I've done it to people when they inundate me after I've told them no. And I happily do it again because you're an ass. Don't do it. It's offensive. And you've got no right to interrupt people like that. Tell me this. You're going to have reps who are under pressure. They're behind. How do you make sure they stay calm and their brain doesn't suddenly go into monkey or reptile mode? Marcus, it happens on a daily basis. I mean, I had a conversation with one of my reps today who was stressed out. It's like I'm behind in my pipeline. I'm pacing poorly. I'm not where I need to be. And I think the most important thing to remind people is focus on what you can control, right? There's a lot of stuff that is out of your control and there's no point worrying about that. Focus on what's within arm's length, things that you can influence and control. And that goes back to the basics, right? I think like by reverse engineering your number to understand, you know, at the top of the funnel, exactly what needs to be done when it comes to daily contacts, making sure you're leveraging multiple channels, stick to the plan that we've designed and things will work out, right? You're going to go through periods where just naturally like sales is a roller coaster ride. Things are going to go up, things are going to go down. Not everything's going to work out in your favor. But if you just continue to stick with the the plan that's been put in place and we continue to improve on the quality, right? Then you'll get there. And so a big thing that I like to do as well is not just focus on the number and the volume, but how do we improve that quality over time? So things like Gong 
have been extremely helpful in terms of like listening to reps calls, getting them to self-critique, I've found has been an extremely important exercise in terms of building that self-awareness. You know what? Like most of the time they they pick it up. Like by the time they've left their comments and their own feedback on there, there's not a whole lot for me to say. Like I'll interject where needed, but for the most part, and you see it, it builds over time. Like in the beginning, there's things they're going to miss naturally. But over time, they start to build really good self-awareness. So I think focusing on improving that quality is, is, is essential. Well, breaking down what I've heard you say is that you start with clear expectations um, and a clear pathway so they know what they need to do, by when they need to do it, to what standard, how it will be measured, and what the escalation and consequences are of non-performance. There's nothing that is hidden from them. So they have nothing to fear because of uncertainty and everything is within their control. If they're willing to be vulnerable enough and ask for help, then the help is there. You're constantly keeping an eye on the behavior and you're on ride-alongs so that you can coach what you see in the moment. And I'm curious, I mean, it sounds to me like in the early stages of your management role, there was a lot of doing. And that's become less and less. I'd be curious if you were to sort of break it down into the five areas of doing, delegating, deciding, design, and the coaching strategy piece and recruitment. Where do you spend the bulk of your time? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, uh, I think like you said in the beginning, the doing was the dominating uh, area. I think probably more, more recently that the design and the delegation of the areas that I've been really looking to to work on. I think like one of the um, one of the challenges that I've probably had in terms of moving from being an individual contributor into into a sales leader is relinquishing control. Right, like I was so used to owning my own number, influencing that number, knowing exactly how to get there, and being taken out of that into a position where <laughs> you're relying on other people to get to your number. That was pretty scary. I still kind of like, I still deal with it. Um, but I think what's helped a lot is is that ongoing enablement piece and like really investing heavily in terms of making sure that these reps are getting sort of 1% better every day. The delegation is something that I've found extremely helpful, recognizing the fact that each individual has their own strengths, right? And I think that what you can do, and one thing that I've thought about a lot is is a team is a collective, right? And so when you think about the different pieces of that collective, they all have different attributes and abilities that contribute to the collective. And so when I'm hiring now, I'm kind of thinking about, does this individual have certain attributes that are going to complement the other people on the team? Very, very interesting. So that, but now you're playing three-dimensional chess whilst you're competition of playing drafts on recruitment. That's really good. Okay, so let's have a think. There's constant pressure from above. And where HubSpot is at the moment, you're going through uh, sort of the, the, what's it, the curve of the hockey stick. And you're going through a huge growth curve. Um, How does one maintain the standards of recruitment in an organization that is scaling really fast, how do you as an individual manager resist the temptation to react to the pressure 
so for example, one of the things that we see often when uh, we're trying to see, make a valuation target is you know, deals being brought forward. How do you resist that pressure to ensure that your pipeline doesn't get denuded and you then create a he- you know, the, the hangover problem, uh, having to replace perfectly you know, viable deals completely from scratch in a quarter when it takes two quarters to get them over the line? It's something that, like, to be honest, it's it's a work in progress. I don't think we're we're perfect. I mean, at the end of the day, like, we're a SaaS company. We have monthly quotas, which actually kind of probably creates a little bit more stress than a, a quarterly quota. quota. I've never worked in a quarterly environment, so that's kind of all I know is <laughs> that roller coaster of rolling month to month. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a really good question. I think, to be honest. A lot of it is really just making sure you're aligning with the customer's timeline, right? I think the end of the day, like if you're if you're having a conversation with a customer which is about you, e.g., the individual, the vendor, the company that you represent, it's pretty meaningless for most customers. And so, what I really like to do and work on heavily with the reps is making sure that through their discovery they have a very thorough understanding in terms of like the impact that this problem has on the business, the individual, what is that resulting to when it comes to lost revenue, time that's being wasted, missed opportunity. And so by quantifying all those different areas, that's the best way to drive urgency in someone's mind. It's not by buy sales, discounts at the end of the month, end of the quarter. Look, sure, I'm sure there's customers that take it, right? Because people still want to deal. But if you're focused on the customer in terms of solving for their specific issues, that urgency is should be most of the time enough for them to take action. You, uh, feel free to tell me to mind my own business, but I am curious, what's the level of discounting your team offers compared with others? It's funny you ask that because I was just looking at a report the other day. I think we're, we're probably the lowest or the second lowest in, in the region. Cool. Okay. Because? I mean... Probably some of those reasons I mentioned before. <laughs> but this, it, if you sell, it's not about the money. The challenge is that most people are not doing any real selling. They're turning up and they're vomiting up features and functionality. They're trying to get to a demo so that they can knock out a proposal in the hope that some of the shit will stick. And we've got to get away from that. If you listen to how Kieran runs his team, he's thinking medium to long term, there's no desperate rush because he understands that over time, it will fall into place if you do the fundamentals consistently and you keep focusing on improving the fundamentals. And the individual is responsible for their learning. The manager's responsibility is to help them identify the 20% they can't do on their own. And at the moment where they can work the rest out for themselves, you have to hand back the pen. Now, the problem is that very often the manager will continue and then go full rescue mode, and that's disempowering. And it also creates a rod for the manager's back because then you end up with upward delegation. How many problems that are not your problem end up on your desk? Probably a few more than I'd like. (laughs) Okay, but from your team? I mean, look, there's there's always going to be issues, right? Like there's... You know, you have customer issues come up here and there, but I think um, for the most part, I mean, when when I'm talking about a problem, it's more so let's focus on how we how we progress this deal, right? Like the deal's gone cold, 
or I need some advice in terms of how to to approach this particular situation. Yeah, it's it's reps that will come to me. And I guess a lot of it is the empowerment, is making sure that you're giving reps firstly like the opportunity to self-diagnose and figure out a solution for themselves and then if they really need you know a push in the right direction then suggestions can can help them together okay so let's go back to the discounting question because it's very topical and um, over the last five six months the vc and private equity community have shifted their focus from revenue at any cost to profitability and collecting cash um in an environment like SaaS, where virtually no managers, no leaders, and no salespeople have ever sold intentionally to make a profit. How has that shifted the emphasis within the business? And because of your approach, have you really had to adapt or were you already selling profitably? Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I mean, I'd love to kind of understand. I probably haven't really kind of thought about or looked into the profitability of us as a team. I mean, obviously you can look at a top line from a business perspective, but it's quite a fascinating concept, which I'd, I'd like to dig into. I'd say for us, Marcus, like nothing has really changed that much. Like I've always been pretty consistent in terms of like the communication and expectation setting with reps. And I think like the ongoing enablement, the training and the coaching that goes into that being focused on, you know, the customer's needs has probably not really seen that much of a change. I mean, it might be different in other teams, but I think um, in general, I mean, one of the other things that I've noticed with reps is when it comes down to discounting and price in general, they just don't, they don't know how to negotiate either. There's a lot of give without get back and return. And so like, this is one of the the areas that I try to focus on with reps in the first sort of six months is is how you actually negotiate because customers do like and often want to take a lot without giving anything back in return. So I think a lot of it is like matching stature, like some of the reps that that I'm working with are like fairly new into their sales career. So a lot of it is helping them to understand the kind of avoiding that parent-child relationship with a prospect or a customer and kind of coming at it from uh, equal status. Very nice. Okay. It really is so important that salespeople understand the mechanics of a business um, and the language uh, of a business, the, the interplay between the different moving parts. And I'm curious how much of your coaching is really helping them to develop that uh, business acumen and um, that range of exposure across the business. Because I look at a product like or a solution, a platform like HubSpot, and you pretty much touch every part of the business. You touch finance, you touch marketing, you touch operations, you touch sales, customer success um, and retention, account management, product. All of it could be heavily influenced by HubSpot. And if you sell, and we were talking about our friend Lucy Crook. Now, Lucy, for years, has been selling the enterprise version to SMEs because she's understood the business and what they're trying to accomplish. And um, she sells them to their vision. She doesn't sell product. She hasn't sold product for years. I'd I'd be surprised if the product even gets a mention in the first two or three conversations. How do you get people to really understand that um, you're not selling software? You're selling the means by which 
their vision is going to be realized. And you're bringing together all of those different moving parts so that they work as one. Because that, to me, is what HubSpot represents, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I think like the easiest way to summarize my belief in this and what I'm continuing to hammer home in my conversations with uh, with the team is it's all about impact, right? People buy because they're looking for an outcome and an impact. And so, you know, it takes reps time in their, the earlier part of their career because they are focused on quite shallow discovery. They need to dig deeper and understand the why, the outcome, the impact, why they're there in the first place, what's the cause behind that. And so really when you kind of help them to understand that through the lens of the customer when it comes to impact and them looking for outcomes, it really changes the whole equation. And I think um, to your point before, like business acumen is something that it, I, I took a long time to learn. I mean, I was selling for about 10 years as an individual contributor. And I think having access and exposure to the channel working with partners, being invested in their business and exposure to their go-to-market strategy, how they acquire customers, how they service their customers, what do their P&L statements look like, how do businesses function in terms of the operational side. That for me like was really interesting. I think like I've I've tried to, where possible, kind of take as much of my learnings from those walks of my career into what I'm doing now. And I couldn't agree more. I think like business acumen for for salespeople is everything because unless you understand how business operates, it means contextually you can't ask the right questions. You don't know how to navigate the conversation. Having that acumen allows you to instantly build credibility, right? When you can talk to talk the talk, use the language of your customer and deeply and intimately know what's happening on the inside, that's where brilliance happens, right? Could not agree more. Let's spend a little bit of time because you mentioned something that most salespeople are really not capable of doing, which is reading a P&L statement. Explain why that's important. Well, you think about it, right? These businesses, they can't operate, they can't sustain unless they have profit, right? And there's so many different factors that go into profit for a business. One of the really key things that we're talking to customers about at the moment is how do you improve profitability by reducing costs, right? And so that's where conversations really move the needle because that's that's what everyone cares about at the moment, right? How do we reduce costs? Layoffs are happening, staff are getting, you know, stepped down, budgets are getting slashed, you know, it's it, it's everywhere. So that for us has been a really good conversation to have. And when you start to understand the drivers of profit in a business, right, what leads to profit and what squeezes margins down or, or expands them over time, that's, that's how you want to have a conversation because, you know, we speak often to, to small businesses, right? Like business owners who are in business to turn a profit because they want to either reinvest that back into the business or they want to take a holiday with their family, whatever they're looking to do to build a legacy. That's where you have a really meaningful conversation. Interesting. Okay. So again, if we look at leadership at the moment, what are the big drivers that leaders are talking to you guys about within the SME space? Cost is obviously one. What else? I think consolidation is a big one, 
most businesses that we talk to have a pretty bloated tech stack. So they might use five, 10, 15 tools. That's even sort of at the, at the lower end. I'm not sure in That's the enterprise space, it's probably hundreds, right? Yeah. I mean, most and, of the reps that I'm talking to average at least 17 to 24. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so consolidation is, is really a big one. I think the other part is retention, right? Like the elephant in the room is, you know, credit's harder to get access to, interest rates have gone up, people are spending less money. So that impacts not just our customers, but our customers' customers as well. So retention, both for us and for our customers, is key. It's so much more expensive to acquire a new customer than it is to hold on to and expand an existing. And so that's a big part of the conversation is like, what are you doing to delight your customers? That's a kind of big part of the flywheel that we talk to, to businesses about is that delight piece. You need to get that right because if you're bringing customers in and they're churning out, I mean, what's the point? Yeah, it's expensive and disappointing and de- uh, truly depressing watching money run out the door. Okay, look, in, in the last few minutes, Karen, let's just start consolidating what we've talked about. If you look back over your career, what were the moments that really started to forge your philosophy? Were there particular moments where you failed in front of the customer, for example, or you had a victory um, and you know, it came as a surprise, but there was a powerful lesson that came from it? I'm very curious to see where, whether there were any of those milestone moments. Not really sure if I could pinpoint it to very specific moments, but more so like points in time. If you were to look at like a range, I, I do think that being fortunate enough to work on sort of developing the channel and the partner ecosystem in Australia and New Zealand has really had a profound impact in terms of the way that I think about things, my approach, uh, and getting back to sort of full circle to where we started, like leading with influence, building trust and earning respect. And I would say that that's something that I've tried to take through and I still try to live by those values on a on a daily basis. The other thing that I think has helped a lot would be working with mentors as well. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with you over the years, Marcus, and so for that I'm extremely grateful. Me I've too. had other people in my <laughs> I've had other people, you know, in my circle uh and in my corner as well and I I can't stress the I can't stress the value and the importance of that enough because it's so easy to operate in your bubble, you know, in your sphere. You're kind of head down in the trenches doing your thing on a day-to-day. And the 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 insight that you get by having someone that can see things from the outside, top down, and give you that perspective is is incredible. And so like that's something that I talk to uh, everyone in my team about, about the importance or just even starting to think about if you don't have a mentor in your life right now. What can you do to find one? Fantastic advice. So tell me this. You've had mentors, you've had coaches. What about self-reflection? How important is time to reflect on a problem and just without any interruptions? How, how are you using that time? It's actually something that I think I probably haven't done enough of in the past and something I've been more mindful about doing. Recently, so like at the end of, 2022, I spent a couple of hours sitting down and just reflecting on the year that was, writing down all the learnings, all the mistakes that I've made, kind of all the takeaways. 
trying to synthesize that down to just a page um, was actually quite difficult. And so I'm wanting to make that into a routine now on a yearly basis. It probably should be more frequent. Like I should probably be doing that on a quarterly basis, right? So I think I really understand and recognize the importance of that uh, reflection because I just think that I probably haven't done it enough and it's, it's so valuable. Great book for you is uh, The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And one of his fabulous bits of advice that at the end of every chapter, there is a series of questions every sales leader should be reading and answering. But uh, his advice is once a week, you 45 minutes and a blank legal pad and a pen and no interruptions, no devices, no nothing. And just one question. And your job is to then work through that question and you'll end up with more questions and answers. Um, but 45 minutes a week, it's really good advice. And I definitely start doing that because by the time you get to the end of the year, you'll have your playbook and it'll be tailored to context and to the individual. So you'll have this library of assets. Okay, one final question then before we wrap up. I was thinking around chat GPT and the negotiation question. How are you using or teaching your people to use the technology that's out there now to self-role play and self-critique their performance and challenge and create their own hypothesis? Because I'm playing in this space now and it's really fascinating. I'm just curious to see what you've been doing. It's it's a crazy time that we live in, isn't it? You think about yeah. the, the advent of computers and PCs, you know, this is this is big time. So I think um, for a company that plays and operates in the technology space, I mean, it's been really fascinating to see our, um, our founder, Darmesh, still getting involved in, in building code and writing code for the business. I mean, we released ChatSpot couple of weeks ago, which I think is in a private beta that customers can get access to, which allows customers to actually use uh, chat GPT to pull the information from the CRM. So instead of digging through building lists and report, you can tell it exactly what you're looking for. It can pull data from your CRM to produce reports and whatever you need within a matter of seconds. You can even pull in data from sources outside of the CRM, which is just mind boggling as well. So obviously that's, that's where everything is going. But one thing I have been talking to my team about more recently is leveraging this technology in your role to be able to build a, a perspective or a point of view, right? I mean, the, the blessing and the curse of what we do is we we do sell to a lot of different industries. So we don't have like industry specializations, reps or HubSpot sell to any kind of business within that particular uh, geographic territory or company size. And so that is hard because, I mean, speaking to a CFO in finance versus a CMO of a software company, two very different personas, right? And so leveraging the technology to be able to prompt it to give me what are the primary challenges for insert persona in industry within 10 seconds to be able to pull up that kind of information allows reps to go into those conversations without being an expert, but having enough knowledge to be dangerous, right? Where they can build a point of view to show the customer that they can see things through their lens and they know what's happening in their world. The one caveat I would have with this is that you then need to be able to back it up. It's all well and good being able to come up with a thesis, but then you need to continue to query to understand the meat and the, uh, the flesh on the bones so that when you get queried by the CFO, you don't suddenly fall foul. So it's a, it's, it is a 
very, very, very powerful tool, but you have to use it judiciously and you have to use it iteratively as well. One of the most interesting things that, and what I'm most excited about is creating libraries of queries so that we can start playing with these things. So, um, you know, uh, supercharging chat GPT-4 is quite fun because it was already pretty damn impressive. But when you put the right queries in to give it more horsepower, it will actually, I found one query yesterday where you structure it so it queries you until it comes up with the ideal prompt to produce the perfect statement. And actually, it works really well because it queries you and queries you and queries you until it gets the information that it needs. Then it spits the answer out. So it's like having your personal coach. And you can have it coach you in the style of as well. So it can speak with a voice. So I really like to uh, use it to create solutions-focused questions because a lot of my questioning historically has been pain, pain, pain. But what I found is that if I can focus on the solution, the pain then has more potency in terms of creating the disconnect between where they want to be and where they are. So really powerful stuff. I'm so excited. But um, this isn't about me, surprisingly. So um, tell me this. You've got one bit of advice to a new manager coming into the role for the first time. What would that one piece of advice be? Are we talking about before they've started the role, when they're in the role first, day one? Day one. I would say, I would say you need to, you need to firstly focus on like defining your your values, documenting your processes, making sure you know exactly how you're going to go to market, who you're going to be hiring, and really like making sure that you have a clear understanding in terms of let's call uh, you can start with a 30 60 90 day plan at a starting point but i think you really need to start what is the end look like and working backwards from that and i've felt for me a lot i'm i like process i think having their processes documented allows you to stick to some kind of structure and there's going to be iterations right so what you start with now might look completely different in six months or 12 months so be willing to iterate take feedback, ask for feedback, invite it in, and um, and build the plane as you fly it. Okay. So how can people get hold of you? So you can get to me through LinkedIn. If you search Kieran Cron, you should be able to find me there. We've got, I'm on Twitter. I don't really use it too much, but email, you can get that straight through LinkedIn. Yeah, they're probably the main main channels. If you want to reach out, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always open to a conversation. Just don't try to sell me something on the first message. <laughs> Excellent. And are you recruiting at the moment? Not right now, but we'll be over the next couple of months. So, yeah, if you're in in market, hit me up. Give him a cold call. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I'd, I'd love that. <laughs> uh, excellent. Kieran, thank you so much. As always, fascinating and really instructive. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, Marcus. It's always a uh, invigorating conversation. I think I've walked away from this as always uh, smarter than I did when I walked into it. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> so this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found it useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe. 
Uh, tag a friend who might need to listen to this, especially if you've got a new manager who might be struggling, because Kieran's uh, story it is really instructive. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com, and there's a link if you want to talk about coaching and training. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.